Revelation, a phenomenal book, a book that's intimidating and intriguing at the same time. You know, I don't know how it was when the first time you read through it, but for me, I was excited to see what's there, and yet it seemed kind of cumbersome. I, I didn't know where I was in the mix of all of that. How did I, you know, what, what was that already happened? Was that going to happen? Am I going to not be there? Am, am I going to, you know, have you ever had, you had probably those questions your first time through, I'm sure. And I've really enjoyed being able to teach it over the years and dig in and clear up some of that and see what, it, what a, an amazing thing God has allowed us to see, to see how he engages, who he is, and also how things are going to be. And he gives us a beautiful outline of functionally where we'll be in the flow of all of those things. And so by way of quick overview of the book of Revelation, we've looked at chapter one. In chapter one, we've seen the author of the book who is the focus of our worship, the focus of the book, quite honestly. We've seen as we studied through chapter one that he was the creator, the sustainer. He is the merciful judge, the gracious God. It's Jesus that this book is about. And he has something to show us that we've seen there in verse one, that he, wanted to, he wants to show his servants, his children, some things. And this literally means to reveal or unveil, which is what revelation means, the unveiling. So as we went through that, we got an understanding of, of who was bringing the message to John, who had something for each one of us, and it carried us into chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 were addressing the church in every age, his church in every age, to you and me and to everyone previously and to those who may come after us. He says, I know. We've seen that in each one of the studies of the different churches. He's saying, I, I know I know your focus. I know your, under, your, your willingness. I know your servitude. I know you. And then he would also, in some cases, give a correction. I know you. Be aware of this. Step up in this. Be, you know, it was, I hope you guys enjoyed that section, two and three, because it was the contemporary church of all ages. Also speaking, obviously addressing issues historically. The church we want to remember... It's not the building. We understand that's the location that his church gathers in. The church is the collection of Christ followers that are born again, born of the Spirit, led by him. Well, it carried us into chapter 4, Kim. And yes, we did cover it on Wednesday night. She was here. And it's the throne room. It's the throne where, where we had a glimpse of heavenly glory, of God's presence, Chapter 4, I believe, is when his bride, the church, is introduced to the heavenly realm after being raptured, caught up, brought up from this temporal world to the glorious throne. Somewhere between chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 4, verse 2, is my tilt, my personal inclination of when the rapture takes place, which is interesting because, see, we're, we're, there's this, this time, this, this, this key, if you would, we're given in this particular book. To, to be aware of the things which John he had seen, which is there in chapter 1, and the things which are, which we've seen there as chapters 2 and 3, and then in chapter 4, the things that will take place after the church age, after that church time. And so that's when the church would be removed from the earth and brought up into heaven. Now today we're going to look into chapter 5, our worthy Redeemer, the victorious Lamb. From chapter 5, we're going to go into chapter 6 where the scrolls are opened and the judgment of Christ upon a Christ-rejecting world. And that will cover chapters 6 through 19. 
bringing us to chapter 20, a time of the millennial reign in heaven, when we'll see this final victory over Satan and all his followers carrying us into the final two chapters of chapter 21 and 22, where there's a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, so much in this short book, so much for you to unveil and reveal to us. We thank you in advance for what you'll show us. God, give us an appetite today for your word. May we not be distracted in any way by various things that we would hear, see, or think. Lord, may our focus be upon you as you would bring your word, as you would illuminate it, as we would take hold of it. God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to make these things known to your servants, to bring them to us for our benefit, that we would grow, that we would realize your great presence in this day and this age. Oh, teach us these things of eternity, the things of, of now and how they all fit together. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in chapter 4, we covered on Wednesday night, John had witnessed this royal worship by the elders and angels. And now it picks up in chapter 5 as he sees something else. You know, Jesus wanted you, us, him. He wants to see what he has for us. And so let's read together. I'll, I'll go through this in, in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John now c- continues this experience in this encounter. May I say, I think you'll be there. I think I'll be there as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. We're looking at a future event. It hasn't taken place yet. John somehow was able to pass through the portals of time, was able to go from the island of Patmos, and in the spirit, God did something in such a powerful way that he brought him into the future to see. he's, He's written, we have a trailer of coming events, of the things that are about to unfold. It's really, it's, it's legit. And so here he's like continuing in this experience, and I'm looking forward to when we are there, and wow. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scrolls and to loose the seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne... And of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the, 14, or the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. All right, man, what an amazing event taking place. Let's just pick up in verse 1 and walk our way through it and see what we can pull out of this, not only for our understanding and greater appreciation of God, but our practical living and the way we would apply it. We see in verse 1, God the Father, his divine presence manifested on the throne He's holding a scroll of significant size and monumental importance. The scroll, sealed with the seven seals, contains the outline and the details for the next 13 chapters of this book, and even more, actually. What they would do in those days, they would take a a document, or we would call it a document, but a scroll, it's rolled up, it's read horizontally, they would take a string as they rolled it back up, and they would wrap a string around it, and they would take wax, and they would seal it. So now you knew that it was, it was you know, if the seal was broken, you knew somebody had opened it. So then they had, this one had seven seals on it. And so here John, he's, just, he's observing this, and he's aware of this scroll. He sees it in the Father's hand, and, and we see in verse 2, as John sees the throne, the scroll in the authoritative right hand of God, then a valiant or a strong angel declares a question. Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose it? If I had to guess, which I like to kind of curiously wonder and look at Scripture to maybe clarify, if I had to guess who this angel is, I would go with Gabriel. And here's a few reasons why I go with Gabriel. Gabriel was the voice for the vision God sent to Daniel in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. And so I'm thinking, man, okay, so here, this is, we see Gabriel in this role, in this capacity. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel brought the glorious news to Mary concerning the miraculous conception and the birth of Jesus. So he brings some good news. Now, bear in mind, you know, we, 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 I wonder, I ponder these things because there is order in the heavenlies. If you remember in Ephesians 6, you and I are reminded that in this spiritual fight, this battle, We don't wrestle against one another, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. See, so there is an order, and we know there's these angelic beings, these creatures that are set in place for other purposes of God. And so Gabriel, I I look and consider he was the one that brought the news to Mary. Remember also in Luke, Gabriel speaks to Zacharias. Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the the Baptist's father and mother. Um, Zacharias was performing his uh, priestly duties there inside the temple. When Gabriel appeared to him and said this, I am Gabriel. And now he gives him a little uh, insight. Who stands in the presence of God and was sent to bring you good news. So he, that was one of the things that he does. God entrusts him with that uh, particular uh, job, we could say. 
Well, what is this strong angel doing here in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2? He's a voice that directs us to Jesus, bringing the good news, and by application, by encouragement. Remember, you're, you're not Gabriel, not in the angel sense, but you have a role. Because see, what is an angel in this, in this, te- in this book? Messengers. They're messengers. And you, me, we are his messengers as well. An angel's a messenger, so are you. Bring the good news. If you're going to bring anything, what are you going to bring? Bring the good news. Bring the good news. Don't let yourself be complicated and maybe even kind of convoluted by doctrine and different things. Doctrine is essential. But let's make sure we bring the good news. That's so important. Now, Gabriel asks a question. Who can open the scroll? It's a simple act to, to open a scroll. But you have to be qualified. You have to be worthy to open the scroll and even to look at it. Now, we're going we're gonna to tie, because this comes up again, we're going we're gonna to hold on to that thought, and, and we're going to come back to it. We're going to work over, continue now to John 4, I mean to, to verse 4, and John, in, here, in observing, it's like he understands this whole realm, if you would, and he realizes no one could just open, there's something about this scroll, its content and, and every element about it, and so he sobbed convulsively. It says he wept deeply because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Continuing in verse 5, but one of the elders said to me. Now, it's interesting that we're not told the name of that elder, are we? We're told about 24 elders. We, we looked at that on Thursday, Wednesday night. But we're actually not told definitively who those 24 are. We may consider them to be 12 elders from the Old Testament, 12 from the New we may consider them to be some form of leadership or they have a position, the title carries it. But may I encourage you as you consider and ponder and discuss who they might be and you look at other texts to maybe kind of figure it out, do not be definitive where God is ambiguous. In other words, if he didn't say definitively, have good discussions, but don't make your own definite conclusions because he didn't give you that liberty. I think he does that in some texts just to teach us to get along. <laughs> just so we can learn to like, you got a good point, but I think this. Well, you got a good point, but I think this. Anyway, who's ordering lunch? You know, that kind of engagement where we're just not divisive. We just learn to, to learn from one another. So here's my point in this. Even in heaven, there's an opportunity to meet the needs of one another. Even in heaven. We may think we serve in this realm, but Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how he serves is different in heaven than than here. We understand understand that. We'll see some details to that. But the fact that he just has that eye, I want to encourage you. One of the elders in this passage said to me, do not weep, behold, Look around. Learn to see the people around you. What do you see and what can you do? You know, that's a fresh encouragement to, to each of us. Learn to see from the eyes of God, if you would, and know how to extend, if you would, the hand of God in a given situation. So check this out. Behold, one of the elders says, check out who's in front of you, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now that sounds like a conqueror, Agreed? victorious. It it would spark the understanding for those who understood their Bible, their Old Testament, those who were, you know, the Old Testament saints. They knew who 
was being referred to. Prophetically, Jesus was going to be this, this lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David. I believe it's Isaiah 11.1 1 speaks of the root of David, prophetically declaring who this person is. And notice he also says from the same, say, excuse me, the same verse there, verse 5, that he has prevailed. See, he has prevailed. It speaks of victory. It speaks of he's accomplished it. It is a qualification. He was qualified to open the scrolls and loose its seven seals. The scrolls, as we know because we've read on, contain the details to the coming judgment of God. There will be six seal judgments, followed by a seventh seal, which actually just unveils or contains the seven trumpet judgments, as well as the seven bowl judgments of chapter 16. So here's what some of the things that are in this. Now, I mentioned that he has prevailed um, because it's important to understand that he has, has accomplished this. And here's something to realize and remember. You and I are living in a, in a time dynamic. We're seeing life through the lens of time. We reference uh, our birth as our starting point, so to speak, and, and we live on. And you, know, you see what I'm saying? What if we could see the beginning and the end at the same time? If we were to go down in, on Air Force Appreciation Day and catch the parade, and so we position ourselves at Carl Miller Park, and we're all ready, and so wow, after a while you see it coming. And you see this, it's the starting. This is the first portion of the parade. But somebody else is actually over by the old Paul's Market, and they're seeing the last few floats start out. And another person is positioned along the parade route, and they're seeing the middle. Man, too bad you couldn't see all of it at once, huh? Well, you can if you're elevated, if you're perspective. From above view, you're seeing the beginning as it's at Carl Miller. You're seeing the middle as it's moving along, and you're seeing the end as it's starting out. So that hopefully is a picture of how you know, we want to see from God's perspective, but we have a limitation while we're on this planet which will change once we end up in, in the, enter into this hell, heavenly realm. He has prevailed. It speaks of his victory. We'll touch on this briefly here in a moment. Verse 6, John sees Jesus and tries to describe the scene in heaven. You know, he, he's trying to put this in, in perspective and soaking all of this in. And, and now there he mentions that there's a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. The raptured church, as I've said, I, will, I believe will have already entered into heaven. Like I say, I reference back around chapter 4, verse 2, which would be awesome in every possible way. We will be in this event. We'll be observing this. We'll be participating in it. Notice what he's saying here. He, as he mentioned, he, he sees this this being, she knows to be Jesus, as a lamb, though it had been slain. We'll catch this when we get to verse 9. It says also that he had seven horns. Seven, we know, as we've studied this, speaks of completeness. And also here we can see the seven horns. The horns speak of authority and power. What we would understand to be omnipotence. God is, is all-powerful. There's nothing that's over him and restricting him and in, inhibiting him in any fashion. So there's the seven horns that speaks of Jesus. We also see where he's given this uh, characteristic or this appearance of seven eyes, speaking of seeing and knowing. So that speaks also of, of the omniscience of God. 
who sees and knows nothing passes by him. He doesn't look away and admire the rings of Saturn and come back and go, now what happened? He, he knows everything all at once. And it's very important to, to keep that in our, the forefront of our consciousness because deep down sometimes we think, oh, God doesn't really, he didn't really notice. This slipped by him somehow. The third thing we see there is the seven spirits, I believe, is speaking to his omnipresence. So you have omniscience, all-knowing, but he's all everywhere at the same time too, which is hard for you and I to grasp because we see not only through the lens of time, but the reference of frame, in other words, physical frame. And so we're trying to figure out, how does he do that? Well, here's a simple thought. He is God, I am not. He is God, you are not. So he can't be limited by what we're limited by. So pretty fascinating. Now look on verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of whom, of him who sat on the throne. I, I believe what we have here is Jesus reaching and receiving from the Father who has manifested at this time this scroll. And the reason I say that is if you consider in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where we're encouraged because we're told about the victory of the great high priest and, and we're, we're given a, a direction, if you would, to live by faith and, and we're told that we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, sat, past tense, it, he's done this, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? When, when the letter to the Hebrews was written, here, it, you know, it's just, just some decades after the crucifixion, resurrection, and bodily ascension of Jesus, and it says he has now sat down, at that time he had sat down, taken this position of equality, unity, and authority with God the Father. And so you see here that he takes the scroll from the Father's hand, picking up there in verse 8. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let's catch the first part. What a great expression of worship. What a glimpse of the reality of prayer as well. The first part, what a great expression of worship. Do you see how they consistently and frequently, they bow down, they fell down before the lamb. That's for you and I to understand what's being portrayed is they, they, nothing was above him. There, there was a willful choice. It's the greatest expression, if you would, in, in physical frame. How do you, you just to bow down everything before him? See, I think that's one of the things that's confusing to us and yet going to be so transformative for us. Worship. See, right now we worship. We just had a great worship service, but it was subdued by some things. It was subdued by the very people that are expressing it. And why do I mean? Well, because the greatest interference to worship is the old nature, our self. So when we want to worship and we're thinking in our head, how do I do this? Perhaps we want to raise our hands. Perhaps we want to sing louder. Perhaps we want to bow down. But in our mind, like, but what will people think? How will that look? Will that be a, will I draw attention to myself? Will I give adoration to God? Will I, how, how do I do this without thinking of me? And, you know, not that any of you had to work through that during worship service, but all of you did. 
Every single one of us, we work through that because we don't, we don't want to draw attention, but we want to give adoration because right now we're still hindered by the old nature. And the greatest interference to worship is self-absorption, self-focus. And we have it. We can say we don't, but then we'll go home and agree with ourselves if we do. And so we got, and man, can you imagine what it's going to be like to have no hindrance, no interference of the flesh, to be in an eternal body, non-distracted by the consequences and the practices of sin, none of that in our way, to be able to worship. It won't seem like, oh, really? That's what we're doing in heaven, playing the harp and bowing down? Man, I can think of better exercises. I mean, a lot of people kind of talk like that. No, no, you don't understand. It's going to be so pure. It's going to be so awesome to be able to participate with these heavenly creatures before the very throne of God. This sea of glass, this, this you know, smooth surface of separation where we see the God, the God in his presence and we're all gathered around him is going to be awesome. Notice also this text tells us about the prayers of the saints. You see, the prayers of the saints, they're, they're like incense, rising in a beautiful aroma in the very presence of God. And what's interesting, I wonder about those ones mentioned here, if they're yet to be fulfilled prayers. Wouldn't you think? What if someone offered up a prayer similar to this? In the, in the privacy of their own home, in the intimacy they have with God, they petitioned humbly, your will be done in my life, in their life, and you pray. Guess what? That started the very moment you brought that petition before God, but it's yet to be completely fulfilled. So it's still in process. What about the prayer, you know, oh God, reign victorious, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer in, in process, being perfected, is not yet fulfilled. Agreed? It will be fulfilled in Revelation, say, 22, when there's a new king, new heaven and a new earth, and we'll worship with un, uninhibited, we'll be able to, to realize it. So, you know, these retained in heaven for the perfect time of fulfillment are like an aroma, a fragrance in the very presence of God. I think it's fascinating. I don't even have to work the text to get worked up over this one. I mean, it's just pretty clear. This is what's going on. And they sang a new song. We see there in verse 9, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You know, when we were back there, just in verse four, it was declared, and John was bummed out, no one was found worthy. And then in, 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 in verse five, you know, it, 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 Jesus has prevailed, and it's declared that he can open the scrolls. What made him worthy? Well, verse six, a lamb as though it had been slain. And now here in verse nine, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Let me, let me go over a principle that's embedded in the Bible. It's a truth that comes alive when we start kind of putting the pieces together. But I'll have to cover a few other things in the process of uncovering this one. John the Baptist made a, a declaration. He, he issued a, a, a directive, so to speak, to some of the guys that were following him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he was directing his disciples to go to Jesus. He was that Lamb of God. Why would he use that terminology? Well, because he understood the Old Testament. 
in the Old Testament, a lamb without blemish was sacrificed as a covering for sins. Jesus came to remove sins, not merely defer the penalty. That's a covering. But we see here in this text that we're looking at, you can see, notice that the marks of his sacrificial offering are still evident in this scene in heaven, showing that it was an eternal work, perfectly accomplished. The Lamb of God took upon himself the sins of the world. So it qualified him. Well, when did sin come in? Track with me and consider with me if you would. Sin came in, we know, this is not to be considered, it's documented, in the Garden of Eden, the birthplace of humanity. So, the Garden of Eden, place here on earth, who owns the earth? Well, we know the earth is owned by God. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And so here we would see, if you could see the picture, the symbolism, and, and even the representation of this physical scroll... He holds the scroll. It's a, it's a type of title deed for earth, so to speak. So God holds this. He creates mankind, Adam and Eve. And in a sense, he co-signs earth over to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He gave them dominion over everything. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. All of it is, is given over to man. But then the problem comes in. Man... Having the dominion, gave that dominion to Satan when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So if you would, track with how this ownership is, so to speak. Mankind receives it, has dominion over it, but then rebels against God's instruction. And the punitive damage, the consequences are they no longer have dominion. We know they're even exited evicted, if you would. In mercy, God evicted them from the Garden of Eden so they would not eat of the tree of life and live in a forever pathetic state of knowing good and evil and not having the power to follow good. So he moves them out. But guess what happened? We know from other passages that Satan is called the prince or the ruler of this age. Think about it from uh, when Jesus you know, he was taken in the spirit, and Satan tried to tempt him. And one of the things he tried to do was offer Jesus all of this world. We can see it in Luke. We'll just look, at the, look there in Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. I hope you're familiar with the story. You can catch it in its context, you know, later this afternoon yourself, whatever. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, the devil, taking Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Jesus, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I hope you noticed Jesus didn't say, zip it, you punk, you don't own it in the first place. It's not yours to give away. He didn't, he didn't question his authority. He allowed him to make that declaration, which is very interesting, don't you think? Because he is the prince of this age, the ruler of this time in a temporary sense. He holds the dominion, the rights, or the authority of this world temporarily. So keep going with me if you would. There's something in the Bible 
that is unveiled in what we're looking at here in Revelation 5, and we can pull it out. It's embedded. It's called the principle of redemption, and it's woven throughout the Bible. So in the Jewish culture and civil order, God gave directive. And when land was purchased, the original owner had the right to buy back under certain conditions. This redemption clause had a time limit, it had an authority requirement, and it had a price that had to be paid. So in a land transaction, all the details were recorded on two scrolls. When they record them on two scrolls, a purchase deed that's sealed and then one that is open. For, for the study of it, to dig into it and see more detail to this application, check out Jeremiah 32. You know, Jeremiah tells the people, chill out, go into captivity, 70 years, God will bring you out. And he was put in jail for treason for bringing that prophetic word. But to prove to the people, I believe, that God was going to come back and they were going to come back into the land, this was legit, he bought some property from a relative because he was able to buy it from this relative. And then you'll see when you study Jeremiah 32 that they took the two scrolls and hid them and buried them so that when they come back 70 years later out of captivity, they would have ownership. You see that conveyed to the people, Jeremiah knows we're coming back. We'll be back in this land. Now, let's track with me on this principle. If the original owner did not or could not buy back the land, then a kinsman redeemer could act on their behalf. Does the book of Ruth ring a bell? Yeah. Kinsman redeemer. It, we basically, the deal was settled there in Ruth uh, chapter 4. You can check it out, but a handshake and a sandal sealed the deal. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. And so think about that. A kinsman redeemer had to be a family member. He had to pay the price, and they had to be willing to redeem the property. That's actually how Boaz gets into position because one before him wasn't willing. But now take that principle, and I thought, how does this apply to Revelation 5? Well, let's just think about it. The wages of sin is death. So only those who sinned have to pay the debt penalty. But we're also told in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have this debt penalty. You couldn't pay someone else's debt because you have to pay your debt first, right? So if you pay your debt and your debt is your life, you, you die, you got nothing left to pay anybody else's bills. You see? So who's going to take care of this? Do you have a relative? Do you have a grandparent that's kind and generous and, and they're willing to, to lay down their life? Great. That's awesome. You're, you're lucky. But wait. They got to pay their debt first. So even if they were willing, they wouldn't be able to pay the price. We don't have anyone. Oh, wait. Maybe we do. Jesus our kinsman redeemer. The sinless man could pay your debt. He came as a man. He lived a sinless life. He has no self-debt to pay. So he's in a position to pay someone else's debt, which is what he did by dying on a cross, going to the, to the grave, to the tomb, rising from the dead, conquering death and hell. He redeemed us. He had to be willing to pay the price, and it was a heavy price to pay. He must die for your sins, and he must be willing to redeem you. He met the requirements. He was willing to pay the price, 
And right back now, as we look back to Revelation 5, he's worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. He's worthy as our Redeemer, and we are his. Here's another thing. Before we jump back to Revelation 5, let's stop by Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're going back to Revelation 5, we see in verse 13 an interesting thing that what God has done, what Jesus has done, the Bible tells us that he placed a down payment, an earnest agreement on the deal. How did he do that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, speaking to Christians who have put their trust in Christ, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or earnest money, you could say, or the earnest agreement of our inheritance when or for how long until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now we're back to Revelation 5. Isn't that beautiful? Now he still is in in process of bringing this whole contents, if you would, of the scroll out. It's not going to be really finished until, like, I would say Revelation 22 when the whole thing is completed. But it's exciting to me, looking back here in Revelation 5, our kinsman redeemer, the one who's worthy, the lamb who was slain. Therefore, we see in verse 9, we sing a new song. We sing a new song. For us, the deal is, it is done. We just don't know the closing date, but the deal's done. It can't be changed. The earnest, the down payment, is everything's taken care of. So we see, you are worthy to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood and out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we know this is speaking to Gentiles, to the church. And have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. We see in verse 11 all these other creatures, the heavenly inhabitants numbering in the billions Joining in on the chorus of verse 12, not all in heaven can sing the song of verse 9 and 10, but they can declare the chorus of verses 12 and 13. Why can't they sing the song of verse 9 and 10? Because they, not, they have not, angels have not been redeemed by his blood. We are very unique. We are very uh, special. The apple of his eye, if you would, humanity, individual people. We're very, God makes it very clear. That's why I I kind of go softly and I kind of, you know, try to be compassionate when someone says, speak, maybe they're speaking of a loved one or someone they knew and and they're trying to bring words of kind of to bring rest to the mind and like, well, you know, God just, he needed another angel up in heaven kind of to sing his praises. Like, that's kind of a demotion, (laughs) To a person who's been redeemed by the blood. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't, yeah, obviously you get what, what unfolds in that time. But no, no, we're, we're, we're unique in what he has accomplished for us. In verse 12, we see them singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the earth and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Wow, what an event. Worshiping him who lives forever and ever without any interference, in purity, in love, and in joy. 
pretty exciting thing we got to look forward to. Not everybody who hears this message is going to be on the right side of this. Maybe some even here today are listening in online, whatever. Not everybody's going to be in the, on the right side of this. Some will not be in heaven. Some will choose hell. It's scary to me. But some will reject Jesus as their Savior, as their Redeemer. They will tell God, maybe they'll say, like, you know, they'll tell how he has to be. Well, I don't believe the Bible this way. I, 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 I relate to God this way. I believe God's like this. And this is how I am forming in my worship and my understanding, my grasp and comprehension of God. I, I'm not, not, not like this. I'm not talking about those who have rejected some forms of organized religion which has godliness but no power. I'm talking about the person who says, you know what, I'm just going to do it my way. Or some will say, I'm just not ready yet. I'm going to delay the decision. Understand that a delaying the decision to receive Christ is a decision to reject Christ. Correct? It's saying, I don't, I don't want it now is a way to say, I don't want it. And that's really risky, really dangerous. Because see, don't mess this up. Seriously, don't mess this up. I mean, people come and go in and out of the attendance of of gatherings and worship services and, and participate in various church functions and do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have not admitted you need forgiveness of your sins, if you have not ask him for your for forgiveness if you've not literally received him the bible would speak of then you're choosing not to go to heaven and and you're going to see in chapter six on you made a bad choice it's a terrible choice consider this in luke chapter nine we're going to finish on this verse this passage see one thing i one thing you every person this is the one thing the one thing You have to work out in this life. The one thing, who is Jesus? Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, we're we're told in Luke chapter 9, beginning there in uh, verse 18, as it happened, or and it happened, as Jesus was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, who did the crowds Say that I am. It was the hot topic. Who is this guy from Galilee? Who is this, this man of miracles? And so people were kind of pondering it. And, and Jesus is talking to those who were following him and, and were wanting to be around him. He says, you know, what's, what's the word on the street? What are people saying? Oh, you know, some say, as we see in verse 19, you know, some say, well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Matthew tells us some of them say Jeremiah. And others say one of the prophets has risen again. So he goes from, what's the public discord? What's the opinion on the street? Notice where he's going, because this is important to you and me. Notice what he says next in verse 20. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's not so much what mom says or your wife says or grandma says or uncle says. Who do you say? What does your lifestyle say? What do your words say? And are the words in the lifestyle synchronized? Because it should be. You say, I say, he is my Lord. Then he gets to lead my life. I say, he's my Savior. He saved me from my sin. And he has ownership of me. He's, he himself is, is the down payment. And so I'm his. 
Isn't this powerful? I mean, just think about it. But I want to make sure, you know, I, I, I'm always concerned about this because it, it, I know for many years, even in my life, I was okay with Jesus conceptually. I liked the idea. Uh, there seemed like there might be some benefits to hang around with him. Even in the Bible shows, you could get a free batch of fish and fresh you know, bread on occasion. So there's some benefits to it. But that's not salvation. That's not trusting in him. He's kind of like a sugar daddy at that point. It's like, no, no. I had to come to a point where there was a deep conviction. My God, who I'm realizing is the person, Jesus, who is the Christ, he calls me to be accountable. He asks me to exercise free will according to his unmerited favor, which brought truth to me that I needed to know that I am a sinner. And the only means by which I can be saved is by putting my faith and trust in the one who redeemed me and offered redemption, salvation to me. And so it's very personal. And, you know, we're going to pray. The worship team, if they could start working their way up here. Um, We're going to pray. And I'll even lead you in a sample prayer, so to speak. But Christianity is one of the easiest things on the planet to fake. But you're not fooling God. God won't be mocked. He won't be misled. So you have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity as you drive home. You have an opportunity. This question will not escape you. If you're not born again, you will be wrestling with this question for for days to come until you learn to ignore God or respond to him. Because his word is very clear. Who do you say that I am? And so why don't we stand together and we'll pray and then uh, we'll worship him by way of music as we close out our time together. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we hear teaching and we hear advice and we get comfort and counsel from one another and we rejoice in that too. But nothing compares to the truth of your word which reveals your deep concern, your, your, your compassion, your kindness, your unmerited favor extended to us. As in love, you remind us, you reveal to us, individually we have sin. We have unresolved issues and the consequences are death. And God, thank you. You love us enough to speak directly to us, to convict our hearts. If you're here today and you don't have that assurance, that confidence that when you pass from this life or when the trumpet sounds and the church is raptured, you're going with them and you're going to him. God's speaking to you today, right now. You know you have sin. You know you have issues you need forgiveness of. And he offers himself as a payment for those sins that you have. You would simply say this, in your own words, in your own way, but in sincerity and truth, God, I, I, I need your forgiveness. I don't get this whole thing. I don't understand all of this, but I know this. I, I've done wrong. I've sinned, and the consequences of that, it's going it's to cost me my life. And so, God, I would ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, I believe your word is true, that you are God. You came as a man. You died for my sins. You rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. You ascended to heaven, and you're right there in authority with the creator of the universe, for you are one. 
And so I would ask you to lead my life. I don't even know how that's going to work. I don't even know what it would look like. I just know I need you. I need you now to fill me with your spirit, to lead me in this life. I'm an infant. I I know nothing. I I don't even know how to to live a new life you've given me, but I have a confidence in you, the perfect father. Show me how to turn from my own way, old ways, and trust in you. Oh, Jesus, do what only you can do for me is you would save me from hell and bring me into your presence of eternity. And God, that prayer, may that be a reminder for all of us who have taken that step, responding to your grace and receiving your Spirit, born of the Spirit. May we now walk according to the Spirit. May we live in such a way that honors you, aware of the time and the hour we live in, not compelled by some odd pressure, but awakened by brilliant opportunities to extend your love of grace to those around us. Oh, Lord, use us as you see fit for your glory and for our joy. We ask these things in our Redeemer, our kinsman, our brother, our Lord, our Savior, our God. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So be it. Amen. Amen.